We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologize for this emergency challenge. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of the everyday routine, the security of the familiar, the tranquility and repetition. Bloody hell. I enjoy them as much as any bloke. But in the spirit of commemoration, whereby those important events of the past, usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, are celebrated with a nice holiday... I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Let me think. Just let me think. I suspect even now, orders are being shouted into telephones, and men with guns will soon be on their way. Damn it. Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? You designed it, sir. You wanted it foolproof. You taught me every television in London. Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression. And where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have censors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and subverting your submission. We need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Suttler. He promised you order, he promised you peace, and all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. Inspector, you're almost through. Last night I sought to end that silence. Last night I destroyed the old Bailey to remind this country of what it has forgotten. More than 400 years ago, a great citizen wished to embed the 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel... And if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me one year from tonight, outside the gates of Parliament, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Today is Saturday, November 7th, 2015, two days after we remembered the 5th of November. And welcome to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me today is my co-host, Shane LaChance. Hello, everybody. 
Also with us in our studio today, we have SOT editors Meg McDonald. Hello. And Karen Nicholson. Hi. Among the topics that will be discussed on today's show, mass protests in the West and in the East, Israeli revisionism on the Holocaust, the U.S. government's Syria narrative, and dramatic earth changes in the form of the incredible increase in ice sheet size, deep crustal rumblings, and fireballs. There seems to be a lot going on. We open today's show with the revolutionary speech, as it's come to be called, from the 2006 film V for Vendetta, directed by James McTeague and written by Andy Wachowski and Lana Wachowski of the Matrix series. The film, as we now know, has inspired the non-centralized hacker activist group Anonymous, but has also inspired thousands of people, especially in the West, to don the Guy Fox mask and assemble in peaceful protest. And on that note, Meg, you had a little bit on the Million Masked Man March? A Million Masked March, yes. Um, I did some checking to, on the Internet this morning to find out if there was a total number of attendees they could come up with, and there wasn't. Um, but it was very well attended all over. There were protests in Amsterdam, um, at the Washington Monument in D.C., and at the Capitol. There was uh, protests in London, several protests. 18,000 attended those. That one got a little violent. Uh, a patrol car was set on fire, and fireworks were shot at horses. Um, the one in D.C., they expected about 25,000 to show up. There was one in Milan. There was one in Melbourne, Seattle, Montreal, Guatemala, Los Angeles, and Wall Street in New York, of course, and Denver, New Zealand, and Japan. Um, they were protesting everything from inequality to corruption to police brutality and capitalism itself, and they have every right to do so, um, but have legitimate grievances. Um, one of the interesting things about the D.C. protest was that the protesters there were feeding the homeless and giving them money, cash. Mm -hmm. um, and also Edward Snowden's attorney, Jessalyn Raddick, attended the. Um, it was very well attended, and um, it, it would warm the cockles of my heart to see so many people standing up for what they think is wrong in a V speech. Um, more people are becoming aware of what's wrong with our world today. Um, there was another, actually two protests on the 1st of um, November. Um, there was one in Turkey, and the, the Turkish people came to protest the SNAP elections. And if you guys don't know what a SNAP election is, it's an election that's called earlier than expected just for a specific issue. And they were protesting specifically the one-party domination of parliament and uh, the pro-Kurdish opposition didn't get in. So there was still a one-party um, rule in Parliament. That one did not end well. Uh, Reuters says that the demonstrators threw stones and then they got tear-gassed, um, but maybe it was reversed. Well, uh, can we talk about uh, Turkey, That all the stuff going on in Turkey at the moment? Because you know, just for the past month or so, you know, it seems there, there's been a huge crackdown on you know, both these types of protests, uh, the media, you know, we, we've seen uh, the Erdogan government, um, you know, go ask um, many numbers of the um, people in the media. And, you know, it seems surrounding just this uh, fascist type environment that that they've been creating and which has been accelerating, I think, uh, with with what's been going on in Syria. Um, I'm not going to get in Syria quite yet, but... Uh, you know, I just thought it was 
it was interesting to see this escalation, you know, coinciding with uh, with all the stuff that's going on in Syria. Uh, so they're unsought um, society's child. Uh, if you look back on Sunday, September 1st in 2013, there's a YouTube video that does a time lapse um, time lapse map from 1979 to 20, and this is about worldwide protests, and it shows the major increase in the global level of unrest. Uh, it's short, it's a couple of minutes, and I think it's it's really fascinating to check that out. Um, it speaks to what is perceived as being wrong in the world. Um, uh, in other protests, we've had uh, a lot of protests in Okinawa. The Tokyo's moved to resume the work on the U.S. Uh, uh, military base. They are thinking that this is illegal invasion. Thousands of, of protests um, in Japan uh, because nobody wants the U.S. military in their backyard. This has gone on for 70 years there, and they're tired of it, and they want it to stop. But this has been a completely peaceful protest um, day after day, thousands and thousands of people holding up their signs and banners, um, and it makes a difference. Uh, another protest has been the City University of New York. Um, this was also a peaceful protest for wages and for contracts uh, for five years, six years. They haven't had um, new contracts or wages. Fifty people, uh, even though this is also a uh, peaceful protest were arrested, and these were union reps, um, professors, and workers. Uh, in London, there was a protest um, against cutting educational grants. This was also a peaceful protest, nonviolent, um, until it reached the Department of Business of Innovation and Skills. Uh, and then we saw agent provocateurs grabbing the headlines. Uh, the police came in and um, people just didn't even know why they were being surrounded. Um, and if we need to look at what an agent provocateur is, that's French for an inciting agent. It's a person who commits or acts to entice another person to commit an, an illegal uh, act uh, or implicates them in partaking in an illegal act. Um, it could be the police, it could be some kind of entity. Um, a famous one for the United States was the COINTEL program. That was run by the FBI, uh, FBI agents posing as political activists. And um, they had plenty of targets, uh, plenty of organizations, especially the ones dealing in civil rights and anti-war activities were targeted. And the last one, the perfect example of a provocateur was in Israel. Um, they had people disguised as Palestinian youth and they were enticing violence. Um, and this is all backed up by video footage. Uh, when the police came and uh, were drawing their guns, these, these folks quickly turned sides and um, also drew guns on the Palestinian protesters. Um, a lot of that turned out. We're, we're going to get a little bit into some of the developments uh, in Israel of late. Um, just a comment on the on the story you mentioned, Karen, on uh, the CUNY professors who were uh, asking for a raise after five years of not having one. 
who were uh, protesting uh, outside of the offices of CUNY in various places. Um, I, I'm a graduate of, uh, of Queens College, um, which is a CUNY school. And uh, what made these schools uh, unique and, um, and really valuable was that the tuition was, was quite affordable. Uh, you had uh, really some world-class professors and um, music school and liberal arts and sciences uh, departments uh, in CUNY. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's obvious by now, but, uh, you know, these are the people that open up the minds of, of students. I had one or two or three incredible professors that just quite literally uh, opened up my world uh, to thinking um, on different things in different ways uh, that I, I credit with, um, you know, helping me to see a lot. And, uh, you know, that, that this body of professors uh, in City College, uh, uh, City University of New York, can't be given a reasonable uh, living wage uh, respected for, for what they do. I mean, it's, you know, it's obvious to say, but, you know, you just have to say it. Trillions of dollars go to war, and um, a small fraction of this money isn't available for the people who are actually uh, helping people to get a real education in the world. In any case, uh, that's my two cents on that. Well, it, it speaks very much to the fact that there there don't seem to be avenues to protest. I mean, obviously, these people didn't wait five or six years to complain about this. This this must have been an, an, an ongoing, you know, reaction to the, the non forthcoming of the, the organization. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, they they wouldn't have inconvenienced themselves unless they had a, a legitimate uh, grievance uh, with the folks who were who were paying them. And it probably was a last resort kind of activity. They probably asked and asked and asked and were turned down. I, I think, think that I think that's a reasonable uh, guess as to as to what's going on there. Well, I I think you know that type of dynamic can probably be seen across the board for all these protests. People are just getting fed up fed up with the massive corruption being pushed down, being treated like non-human beings. And you know, it's just this uh, expression of this mass pathology that people are just like you know, just saying, "Had enough." Um, now we uh, we open the show with the V for Vendetta, and you know, today is November seventh, uh, the uh, House of Parliament standing. But uh, in uh, Romania, uh, there is also another protest and. This one uh, I found pretty interesting because uh, – so it, just to give a little bit of a backstory, uh, I think uh, earlier last week there was a nightclub fire in um, Bucharest. Bucharest, and this was like you know, the, the last – this was the last straw you know, that, that broke the camel's back, and, and uh, because previously – the, the people had already been really fed up with uh, the massive corruption uh, from Romania, from the Romanian government. And, you know, there there may have been things going on with the, the nightclub fire uh, with 
you know, backroom deals, getting things going through that, that shouldn't have. And uh, the mayor resigned. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just at a local level. Uh, the uh, prime minister, uh, Victor Ponta, you know, he, he resigned and he also um, basically, you know, the, the whole remaining cabinet also resigned. So there's a whole it's 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 pretty incredible. Twenty thousand um, people too. Yeah, there's twenty twenty thousand people on the streets, and it was nationwide. It wasn't uh, just in Bucharest. Uh, it was it was nationwide, and you know people were just outraged. Um, and you know the uh, one other el- interesting element I think of the story is um, just the alignment that Romania has had with the West. You know, they are one of the key NATO vassals in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, I take a look at many of those countries, and uh, Romania has just been, you know, totally key in opening its arms to NATO and, you know, military buildup. And uh, they, they've just, you know, really gone along uh, all the way with, uh, with the U.S. So after... You know, it, it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. Um, you know, it's it's early to say. You know how things will go, uh, but you know it is a it is an interesting. It's one of those of alternate event. reality moments too, because you don't see that happen very often, where entire government goes away as a result of a protest. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of uh, NATO and protests, Meg, there was also a story about um, an anti-NATO uh, protest in Italy. Yes, it was about a thousand people. It was in Sicily, Italy, um, and they were just basically protesting um, the Trident Juncture NATO exercise. It's one of the largest NATO exercises ever, and they were, you know, protesting no more war, we're not NATO's lab, and NATO being one of the single largest causes of death um, right now in countries. It's it's absolutely, um, I think it's awesome that a thousand people recognized that and took to the streets. Yeah, and it, it speaks to, I think, you know, a lot of um, Europeans and, well, pretty much everybody else in the world except for Americans. You know, Americans are so isolated. We don't have any idea of, you know, what we do overseas and how uh, how we affect other countries. And I think, um, you know, I think many Europe do have a, a, a broader perspective as far as what's going on in the world because they are more connected you know, with uh, with their neighbors, and uh, so it's understandable that you know when you do look at the big picture of what's going down in Europe, and how the EU is crumbling, and what the causes of it are, that they would be outraged. I mean, I, it, I I'm outraged, and you know, it's it's I'm not Italian, but you know, I, I would be outraged for them too, and and it's so it is totally understandable um, that that people are really getting pissed off. Well, I, I think they, you know, with all of the uh, NATO exercises, in particular recently you had NATO exercises in uh, Portugal and Spain and parts of the Mediterranean. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a certain amount of uh, objectivity that you were alluding to, Shane, that, that they're privy to. Uh, yeah, they're still influenced by Western media, but... Um, I think they're seeing the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the the uh, I'm sure their economy has a lot to do with it too. Once people really feel the effects of the you know the political policies that are that are put in place, 
uh, firsthand once you once you go through that. And I'm sure Americans are starting to feel that, uh, but we're so deluded and and entrenched in you know uh, the beliefs in our system. Um, and you know, Italy has gone through quite a bit of turmoil uh, ever since it began uh, to to be you know connected with the, the EU and you know the NATO overlords. So um, yeah, good for them for at least speaking out. Well, it looks like we have a, a caller, so. Let's take our first caller of the day. Yes, Hello, uh, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes, this is Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Yes. How are you? For, formerly Jonathan. And um, that, that was pretty pathetic. We were going to ask. Well, it was pretty pathetic of me to even don an alias because really I'm not, I'm not really subject to having my throat slit by uh, ISIL. So um, you know what? Uh, some some there there are definitely repercussions to anything that you do as a person, no matter if you live in a uh, you know social democracy as they call it in Sweden or in the United States. But uh, no, I'm I'm uh, no, I'm, I'm using my real name, and um, because the phoniness the phoniness has gotten so deep here that to not be authentic and stand by who you are and what you are and what you have to say. Is is really just to play into the the general uh, illusions and phoniness that just uh, you know continue apace. So um, uh, I I wanted to mention um, I wanted to point out a very uh, interesting discussion um, by Eric Dreitzer, and I think there's a uh, a link to it audio link to it on his website uh, Stop Imperialism and um, it was with uh, Mark Sloboda, who's a, who's a personality that's regularly featured on Crosstalk uh, RT, and Eric mm-hmm. Reister, and then another gentleman by the name of um, um, Don. Jeez, I keep oh I forgot his last name. His name is Don. But anyway, they have a discussion every Sunday, and um, I think it's uh, it, this was a very cogent discussion. That had to do with uh, the 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 role of the Kurds in the uh, the unfolding uh, drama in Syria, and um, it was a very in-depth discussion on uh, the Kurds being uh, this wild card um, that will uh, play a definite role on how uh, things unfold into the future there. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to point point your listeners to that and y'all to that very uh, very astute and informative discussion. But um, I, I wanted to mention something about uh, my research that I'm doing. I'm taking notes and cataloging sources and reading a lot of articles because when I, when I, when I start to put all this article together, um, this is going to be a rather long article, but um, it, the subject matter is, um, is appropriate to what y'all do. And um, I'm astounded. I'm, I'm just I'm going down a rabbit hole. And um, as I told y'all before, I was kind of disconnected from uh, doing a lot of reading and research into the media since a little bit before the time of the uh, invasion of uh, Libya. And um, as I start to investigate uh, about Mother Agnes and her trying to bring uh, evidence 
that um, called into question the dominant U.S. and, uh, you know, NATO narrative about Assad and his government using chemical weapons. And the, the group of intellectuals um, that wrote a letter that signed a petition to stop Mother Agnes from speaking, um, it goes from Tariq Ali to Vijay Prashad, and there's many, many others. But um, I'm going down a rabbit hole right now because of the people like Jeremy Scahill, um, Glenn Greenwald, um, and these other intellectuals that, that really militated to stop Mother Agnes from presenting at a Stop the War um, meeting in London. Um, I'm looking at reviewing what they've had to say about Syria and Ukraine um, after that event. And, wow, it, it, it blows me away. The um, It's just almost total silence from developing articles that have something cogent to say um, about how this has unfolded, unfolded subsequently. So um, what, what I'm being blown, what's blowing me away right now, is I'm I'm finally recognizing um, that these progressive left intellectuals that I had for a, a decade and a half kind of idolized, you know, that I was on their side and all that. I'm not saying that they're all like controlled opposition, quote unquote, the enemy. I'm not saying that. But what I'm I'm finding out is um, there's a lot of just very weak thinking. Um, on the part of the so-called progressive left. And when, when we look at the situation right now with uh, these protesters and Sunni, these professors being jailed, um, and then when you research it, it's hard to find any cogent information that's in-depth about it. Um, across the board, when it comes to Ukraine and Syria, man, I'm, I'm blown away on how difficult it is to find in-depth, cogent information you know, you have the Internet, and I go from one Google page to the next, and there's a few consistently good sources, but um, the, uh, the, the dearth of um, the absence of really cogent, in-depth analysis on the, on the, on the part of the so-called uh, intellectual left is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And um, I think it's connected to when Obama came into power, I think it's connected to uh, how people obtain their their actual money they do and what they write, and um, I'm just I'm just incredibly blown away. But um, I wanted to also mention to you that um, I really believe that the that we're we're also witnessing something that's tectonic in the uh, Western societies from Europe to the U.S. when it comes to the left and right kind of dichotomy you know, that we've been inculcated into, like, identifying as something real, I'm finding some, some of the best um, criticism of U.S. imperialism, um, you know, in places that are on the, on the right and um, on the new right, for example. And I'm finding some of the worst regurgitation of uh, State Department propaganda to be taking place on the progressive left. So um, I'm gonna interrupt I believe you. that... Oh, go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you because uh, you, you made a lot of uh, interesting points, as you usually do, Stephen. And um, I, I just want to say real quickly, and, and some of these things will be covered, especially uh, in the context of, of what we're seeing now in Syria and the developments there. But uh, just in general, I mean, you know, we're, uh, you know, even here, 
at, at our high exalted uh, mountaintop vantage view at, at Sot Central, and I'm being a little facetious, of course, but it, you know, seeing uh, truth where you can get it from wherever you can get it, it is hard work. Uh, you know, we've carried pieces on Sot by Patrick Buchanan, uh, who's a known conservative. People have even kind of commented, like, is this the same guy who, who said this and this? And it's like, yeah, because right now, at least in the context of his one article, he's speaking truth. Uh, so we, we take truth where we can get it. Um, we, we carry a lot of articles uh, by folks who are pretty well known in the blogosphere who, who have a, a very good idea in some areas and then don't have a freaking clue in other areas. It's incredible. Um, you know, and I alluded to that when you brought up this topic uh, on either last week or the week uh, before's show. Um, you know, there are some well, who just don't have a, a, a broader picture or who have biases well, well, that, that uh, affect deeply what they're saying, and they're misinforming people. And that's just and, something and, you have and to you know, accept and look at. And, and to interject a point on that, I remember that you pointed that out. Now, I am very, very skeptical to people that profess to have something to say, issues of particular importance at our, our historical juncture. Now, people can, can specialize, you know, and their, 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 their focus is more on the environment or some culture. But now back up. If you, if you deign to have something to say in those areas, I also expect an analysis and opinion that's intelligent of other very salient and unfolding world events. Now, if you totally avoid other events, you know, I'm sketchy. I'm sketchy towards you as an intellectual. And um, I've seen I've seen that pattern happen, that when I'm looking at these people that try to stop Mother Agnes from speaking and I'm trying to look at their body of work pertaining to Syria, wow, I mean, just like, it's almost totally non-existent. And it's like, I'm not going to imply that people are being paid off, but there's, there's larger forces that come to bear. Now, when people are featured on Bill Maher and um, MSNBC, um, and they're posing as being an opponent to U.S. government policy, I'm very sketchy about that, and then therefore I want to see what else they have to say uh, with respect to Ukraine and Syria. And it, and it definitely is something extremely lacking there. But, you know, going back to where, where my, my thinking is right now, I'm doing all of this research, taking notes, trying to catalog good sources. And a lot of people that I agree with, like, say, for example, with Syria, when I, when I start looking at this tone of, like, the Jews, the Jews, I mean, that's – I, I, don't, I don't hate on them. But I, I find it, I'm very suspicious of buying into any narrative that focuses inordinately about the Jews, Jewish control of uh, United States and you know the Illuminati stuff. And there's a lot of information that you might just like say, "Wow, this guy's on it." And then when you look at their other discourse, it's like they're they're also leading you down a path of uh, you know trying to. Uh, you know, very critical of Israel, but uh, when your analysis almost invariably goes back to the Jews, the Jew, I'm very sketchy about that, you know. And um, But anyway, I just talked to um, – we're in an election season, and there's other people that – person that I really respect his opinion in 
on what's happening in Syria. But then he started talking about, you know, Sanders. And he's like, yeah, Sanders is our only hope. And I'm like, what the hell? Sanders' idea of foreign policy with respect to the Middle East is turning the Saudis loose to be the enforcers. (laughs) That's totally freaking ridiculous. So it's very confusing. uh, It's a very confusing uh, market of ideas out there. And I've seen, um, I'm witnessing a collapse. This is a sign of the almost total collapse of the so-called left and the liberal progressive uh, intelligentsia. It's an almost and total collapse of this milieu milieu of uh, people. And there's like a a bunch of uh, very half-assed, fake-ass people that pose as being these progressives but then they they swallow these assumptions that will uh, you know rationalize uh, humanitarian intervention, i.e., U.S. NATO imperialism. And man, this is like this is something that's extremely strong. Now, I just spoke to the husband of a uh, a state a senator for the United States Congress, and her name was uh, Paula Hawkins. She was senator during Reagan from 1980 to 1986. And these are Republicans. I mean, these are Mormon Republicans. And um, I've known them for like 20 years. And um, it's a deeper reason how I became to be familiar with this family and become friends with them. And I've always been on like the left, and I've kind of kept it secret from these people. And uh, But it got so bad, my disgust with uh, Clinton and then uh, now Obama – that um, I speak to him, and um, here's here's the grapevine. I'm just going to give you all some information on how things are, are likely to play out with the United States presidential race, and we can review a year from now, you know, or, or a little bit sooner, 10 months from now, how much uh, cogency, what I have to say, uh, develops. Marco Rubio. Stephen, I'm going to I'm going to ask I'm going to ask that you that this be your last point because we have topics yeah, that uh, it, it is. That need covering today. Although it's all very interesting, and I've been tempted to to interrupt you several times and comment on several of the things that you said because we could we could easily devote whole shows to a lot of the 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 topics you brought up. They're very valid. Well, well, anyway, I'll I'll just make this. I'll just make this one. I'll just relate this one anecdote. I'm family friends of these people. Senator Hawkins died. Um, I was asked to become a Mormon by this family, which was really weird. There's a longer story behind it, but. I had an in-depth conversation with this gentleman. He's like 84, elderly. And we were just talking about, like, I said to him, I said, look, I believe that Trump is out there as a sheepdog. He's, his, his, uh, what he's doing is he's getting people riled up. People are in fear right now, and he's, he's generating scapegoating uh, Hispanics and Latinos. Now, I believe, and he concurred with me, that the larger strategy among the big power players within the Republican Party is this. Trump is going to go to the wayside. Marco Rubio is, is gaining traction in Vermont and Iowa. Now, Marco Rubio is going to be the man. He's going to be the one that people are going to throw their weight around. And, um, and he's their best bet because Republicans have to win Florida. And Marco Rubio he is going to cut into the Latino vote. He's going to allow for the victory of Florida electoral votes. And um, I've been thinking about how this is going to develop. And this guy yesterday, he's the 
He's the husband of a senator, Republican senator, who's now deceased, Paula Hawkins. He totally concurred with my analysis of how all of this is shaping up. So that's all I have to say on that. So well, I just want to throw that. that out there. And uh, always very interesting. And, and uh, like I said, you know, there are several things that you said that we could really devote whole shows to, I think. But uh, good hearing yeah. from you, Stephen. It's weird. It's and a weird, we'll, uh, it's a weird atmosphere. Yeah, it's a very weird atmosphere we're living in right now. Very weird. So, hey, thank you all. I look forward to listening to the rest of the show. Bye-bye. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, there was uh, one one point that Stephen brought up that I wanted to talk about a little bit, which was, you know, how it can seem that, uh, you know, a particular source or person can have such a valid and logical standing of, you know, a particular topic. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at some of their other views, it's like so way off base. Um, and you pretty much you, you see this over and over again in not just uh, political areas, but when when you cross over into, you know, psychological stuff, um, you know, every topic pretty much deals with this, with this issue. And I think that that's, you know, it's really one of the things that uh, we try to do on thought is to look at uh, all these different facets uh, of things, because when you do just get caught up in one or two, then, you know, you're really missing uh, the the development that's needed from looking at other aspects uh, that that can help you critically, more critically analyze mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so it is real easy to, um, you know, rage against the machine in your area. But once you, it's so easy for, um, you know, just these opinions to form mm-hmm. about things that you really don't know about. Um, and so it does take, you know, it takes an understanding of history. It takes an understanding of psychology, of, you know, what's going on in, on the, the, with current events now uh you know so there's this there's this broad um work that needs to be done basically uh you know both uh on yourself and in in looking at the world you know so i i yeah i just wanted to bring that up because you know it is something that we see time and time again uh with with all areas really and and that's a mistake we make with uh, our politicians of choice um if we if we believe one thing they say, we tend to want to believe something else that they say, and that's not always true. Jonathan or Stephen is right. Yeah, and I think like one of the crucial words that Shane just said was development. I think that um, when we when we become confident uh, in ourselves in one area of knowledge, uh, there's a certain amount of um, uh, unconscious. Uh, uh, arrogance or, or bravado or uh, maybe those are the wrong swagger. words or swagger <laughs> that, that kind of, you know, well, you know, I, I see this one situation so clearly and, and people agree with me, you know, I can, I can just apply my, my smarts to, uh, and of course they don't really apply their smarts. They, they carry over this false confidence into other areas um, and don't bring in the, the humility or the, the, the true quest for uh, what the truth is in a particular area. So just a little, uh, just a little extra there in that, um, on that idea. Um, and I do think we should 
I do actually do think uh, Stephen made a good point about uh, false progressives. And, and one of the ideas we had for today's show is to discuss Hillary Clinton uh, at length, but um, we decided it would be a little too nauseating given some of the other topics we're going to cover today. And I mean that literally. Well, uh, maybe half jokingly. We, we still have some nauseating subjects <laughs> to cover, though, so don't worry, everybody. More than enough. Um, well, Speaking of nauseating subjects. <laughs> yes, that, which leads us to our next topic. Uh, some of you may have heard, um, well, so Benjamin Netanyahu. Beaten. That's nauseating. That's just the name, right? Uh, we all remember a few years ago his, uh, his UN delegation speech where he addressed the delegates and had that uh, that wonderful little infomatic bomb graphic, you know, showing how close Iran was to getting the bomb. And <laughs> and we've talked about that here before in the truth perspective and how manipulative a, a, a little tool that was and um, and also how ridiculous. And, uh, of course, he managed to top that um, at the more recent uh, UN assembly where he basically tried to guilt and shame uh, all the delegates there into um, or about their the Western reproachment with Iran. So, uh, you know, basically he was saying, um, you know, the silence concerning uh, Israel's security in this whole situation was deafening. It was deafening. So what does deafening he do? Deafening silence. Deafening. He delivers deafening silence. So he delivered deafening silence. He, he spent about 45 seconds in silence. <laughs> Staring down uh, the UN delegates and uh, and basically kind of trying to induce this guilt. I'm I'm going to give you the deafening silence now, and uh, it was widely made fun of. And um, as it should have been, yes, <laughs> uh, utter, utterly ridiculous. Well, seems like he's topped even that. Uh, in a recent speech to the uh, World Zionist assembly, uh, which is, I guess, like a kind of a uh, international APAC meeting of sorts. I, I don't know. Uh, he basically attributed uh, the final solution um, or the plan to um, Nazi Germany's plan to kill Jews during World War II to a Palestinian mufti. Um, and uh, Wait, uh, so, can you describe what a Palestinian mufti is? Yeah, so so a mufti is basically the kind of uh, appointed religious leader of a uh, of a given area, uh, Muslim, um, and it's a you know it's a leadership position. Um, people look up to him. You know, he might have uh, some. Uh, political influence, uh, but certainly uh, there's a role there as a spiritual. And um, there is a, a piece by Uri Uvneri, who is an Israeli journalist, peace activist, uh, writes quite often for Haaretz, who is covering this story. And uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Uvneri is a bit of a historian. You know, the guy's in his 70s, I think. And uh, and he he really kind of captured um, what the world's response was to um, Netanyahu's assertions. 
So just to be completely, you know, black and white here, Natanya was basically saying, uh, just to reiterate, that um, Hitler wasn't responsible for uh, the destruction of Jews during World War II. He only really wanted to have them expelled. So are are you telling me that uh, Netanyahu is a Holocaust denier, Elon? Yes. Yes, he's a he's a revisionist, and that's the that's, yeah. isn't that the interesting irony there? Yeah. Okay. Wasn't his father a, a historian? Yes. Yeah. Right. He didn't learn much from daddy. No, he he didn't. Um, it doesn't seem to matter, uh, or rather, it does, but in a in a rather twisted sense. Um, in any case, uh, just getting into the story a little bit here. Um, yeah. Netanyahu makes these statements. Uh, Angela Merkel, Prime Minister of Germany, comes out and says, "You know, no, Germany is responsible. We did it." You know, uh, you know, probably horrified. You know, doubly horrified. Um, Germany, you know, for all its uh, destructive tendencies on the world stage, these, um, you know, they know better. Yeah, you know, this has been a this has been an ongoing issue that they've been wrestling with for decades. And they've been paying reparations for years and years and years and years and years. Paying reparations, uh, arming Israel. Um, you know, they they've been basically emotionally successfully emotionally blackmailed. Um, so she comes out. You have all of these uh, Holocaust survivors who are up in arms. What are you saying, uh, BB? And um, and so you know his his insanity um, is really for a lot of people being called into question uh, as if all the other shit that he's done in the past few years, past two decades actually, uh, you know wouldn't make that clear. Um, so uh, it's an excellent article. It's written by Uri Avneri. It's entitled Netanyahu's Ramblings About One Palestinian Mufti Being Responsible for the Holocaust Wakes Up the World to His Insanity. Well, what makes the story so fascinating is, so Netanyahu thinks he can use uh, this, these, these two agendas that are at Israel's disposal, disposal which is one, the, the Holocaust industry, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other is the destruction of Palestine, of Palestine and Palestinians. So in his mind, he, he, he probably cooks up this plan. He's like, oh, maybe I could combine the two, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and say the Palestinians are actually responsible. And, and that'll, that'll introduce our own final solution, and you know, you can just kind of see the, the the gears trying to turn in his warped mind to to get this message across. And of course, it totally backfires on him. I mean, like you know, the, most of the the religious zealots in in uh, Israel are gonna they're gonna be like, well, what? what? What are you talking about? No, this is our whole foundation, you know. And so it, it, it's it's just it's kind of entertaining. To, to see, you know, him just uh, falling apart at the seams. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, just, you know, what is going on there? Is is he actually, you know, uh, disintegrating? Uh, is he lo- losing his mind? Is uh, is he, is his mask just coming off? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, and, I mean, he's always been this uh, caricature, uh, you know, 
and like you said, when you, when you introduced this uh, topic, you know, the, his whole cartoon thing at the at the UN several years ago, you know, it just makes a fool of himself. Well, well, here's the thing. So uh, among the people who know a little bit of history, uh, among, um, let's say, the world of semi-sane and semi-aware and awake people, uh, you have this reaction. What the heck is he talking about now? But here's the other thing. There, there is a population of extremists and settlers and even religious you know, zealots who are listening to this guy and seeing it as permission to go nuts. To, uh, it's a kind of a coded signal. Mm-hmm. They did this to you. The Palestinians are responsible for the Holocaust. Hitler, eh. He didn't really want to. He just wanted to expel the Jews. He didn't want to go that far. The Mufti. That, that's, that's that's what he's the Mufti it's all the Mufti's fault. Blame the Mufti. Blame the Mufti, uh, who you know was um, was a Mufti in uh, in Israel during uh, the very contentious period of uh, Israel, you know, gaining its um, its nation status. Uh, he, this guy uh, Husseini is largely responsible for, um, among some in the Palestinian community actually dividing the community at a time when they needed to be united uh, in their effort to, to uh, stave off uh, Israel being established. Um, so basically this Mufti who was, uh, who was appointed by a, um, I believe it's a, a British Jewish politician, um, was, was a really destructive force. Uh, and gets shuffled around, goes to Lebanon, goes to Iraq, goes to Italy, and um, and meets basically with the Third Reich, who at the time was interested in recruiting uh, Muslims in the Middle East to fight against Russia, who Nazi Germany saw as their main um, opponent during World War II. So, uh, so you know, Hitler is basically... Um, kind of convinced to do this photo op with the Mufti, uh, which was their only communication, their only exchange. And uh, Tanyahu and his maniacal media team conflate this, this one meeting and photo into, you know, as you said, Meg, blame the Mufti. Uh, and it's, it's quite remarkable. But here's the thing, I think. In the psychopathic economy of Netanyahu's mind and his team, Right. So, you know, maybe a couple of them said, uh, I don't know if this will fly among the people who who know history or among the people who, you know, who are kind of sane. And somebody, probably Netanyahu, said, I don't care. Yeah, we're going to do this. You know, if if only I mean, there's this drive here to incite uh, the most irrational uh kind of elements of the Israeli public, of which there is a considerable portion. Even scarier is if what if they didn't think about that? What if their uh, thinking is so limited that they thought this would fly? Yeah, mm-hmm. but that could be the case. I mean, it's you have to, not very smart when they're low complex. And you have to think that, you know, the people that he surrounds him with, himself with must be equally nuts or just maybe they don't have any type of uh, valid power where they can convince him to 
you know, they, they, they kind of sit him down and say, BB, this isn't a good idea. And because he does these stupid things over and over and over again. So it's like, you know, are, are his, uh, are, is his team equally insane? Which could be the case. <laughs> or uh, or, or do they even know? Yeah. I mean, he seems to be so self-assured uh, that he can push the envelope and get away with almost anything. You know, if he, he, he can go to reaction and get, get somebody to move somewhere, then that's a good day for him. Exactly. So it might have been a surprise to everybody that the Mufti is to blame. <laughs> Yeah, everybody in his administration probably like, huh? And and the and the one most shocked would be the Mufti. <laughs> he's he's rolling over in his grave. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I I heard somewhere, I read somewhere that Netanyahu since backtracked on on that statement. I don't. There's so much backlash. He yeah, I can imagine that he had to. Yes. At the same time, you know, the damage is done, right? He has whatever percentage of people that are willing to follow him into uh, Armageddon. Uh, they they've heard the words. Uh, they've been they've been given the signal. The yeah. So uh, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, you know, we've had this uptick in uh, in political. Uh, well, you know, the Palestinians who have been desperate, desperate for just a basic, you know, kind of humanitarian assistance over the past uh, year and a half, uh, but even much longer than that. Uh, there's been a rash of stabbings in Israel and in various other places. And uh, and so, you know, this is what Netanyahu does. He capitalizes on that, you know, kind of reforms the gun laws. You know, now you have Hasidic Jews running around with, with pistols ready to ready to shoot um you know palestinians at the drop of a hat and of course you know any kind of response or retaliation to that is just further fuel for netanyahu's you know justifying the next uh slaughter well you see some of the settlers going so nuts attacking each other thinking that you know who they're the person that they're attacking is a palestinian and it ends up being you know uh, another israeli settler or yeah well, well, there, there, right, right there is the kind of the, the blind uh, hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like they're, it's like whatever brains they have, kind of get felled by the wayside. Uh, there's just this kind of, um, and and whatever's kind of motivating Netanyahu, or whatever you know, uh, metaphysical or cosmic. Um, forces of evil that, that may be moving through him that he's a channel for uh, know exactly what to do. They're pressing the freaking buttons on him and on, and on that most unstable part of the Israeli populace. Uh, so it, it's just fascinating to see in a, in a horrific way, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it gets back to polarization. Yeah. That, that's, that's the, I think the key word that, this sickness is getting to uh, such a massive level that it's bringing, you know, the um, pathological people down uh, just because they're, they're basically so consumed uh, by this irrationality and hatred and, and just, you know, this, these destructive forces that it's like this collapse that, that's happening. And you know, um, not to go too off too far off the topic, but I'm you know noticing the same thing 
uh, happen, happening in the United States with, with the police. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple stories this past week where there was uh, one officer, uh, I think in Arkansas, he, he shot himself uh, in the chest. He had a, he had a vest on and uh, he, didn't, he didn't die, but he was trying to frame it on a non-existent person. The person didn't like. He called it in. He he set up a, a crime scene with you know placing the bullets, the shells on on the, the pavement, and 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 called it in and said he was going after uh, the suspect and gave the description, and it was all complete fabrication. Now, uh, a few days later, there was another story of this cop who commits suicide, and uh, and and. Stages his death in a way that it looks like he's uh, chasing these these suspects. He calls it in and then shoots himself. There's no suspects. There's nobody else involved. He just wanted to make it look like he was dying, like he died in the line of duty. Like this is this is baffling to me. But it's it, I think it speaks to the same issue of these psychopathic leader types who are so consumed by this uh, this disease. That it is kind of coming in on themselves. You know, when when you consider all of the lies, because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the pathologizing of citizens with lies. There there has to be this incredible amount of cognitive dissonance that's being foisted on people without their even knowing, of course, because that's kind of implied in cognitive dissonance. Um, but they, it's like it's like it, it exists in ancient sphere, and they don't quite know what to do with it. They probably can't even put their finger on it. And I think to some degree it's driving people nuts. Mm-hmm. I agree. Absolutely. So um, on the subject of, of nuts, um, well, maybe just one word about the, you know, this whole Netanyahu speech. Um, there was another article uh, that was covered. Uh, on, by Sant, uh, by Abigail Arbabanal, uh, probably mispronouncing that, but um, the piece was called Is Netanyahu's Insanity Calculated? And uh, it was also coverage of, of these recent things that he, that he said. And, um, you know, basically, I think the conclusion there is, you know, he's crazy like a fox uh, in a way. Um, and I, I guess we can debate, you know, is crazy like a fox also just plain, you know, plum, batshit insane. Yeah. Um, but it's also very, uh, manipulative and, and controlled. And, uh, and I think that we'd, um, people called Hitler a buffoon even before he rose to power. They called him a buffoon. Uh, we call Netanyahu a buffoon. Um, but, you know, there's, there's an element here of, uh, of controlled manipulation that is just incredible. Even if he goes back on the things that he said, I mean, he's, he's, you know, well, I'm just kind of beating a dead horse here because it's, it's quite something to see. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of 
Well, he's radicalizing the Israelis. I mean, he's creating like an informal, I won't say army, but with the guns, you know, uh, the laws have changed to, to allow guns and then all this fear-mongering about Palestinians and the, the moves he did it. Um, that's incite, going to incite more violence, and it won't be by the IDF. It'll be by the neighbors, you know? Well, there there is, I think, this distinction to be made between, you know, what it means for a normal human being to go insane versus what we're about, which is a, a psychopath um, basically disintegrating um, when, you know, the, their, their reality, their psychopathic reality is, is kind of collapsing or beginning to collapse um, or moving in that direction and they feel challenged and, you know, it's like they're, they're, they have no um, response to that. So it's, it's like their structure you know that that psychopathic structure doesn't really know what to do, so it's just like well, that's uh, to me it. It's the mask starts slipping. Mm-hmm. They get yeah. so desperate, right, that they let that mask Lord. slip, and we see the non-human behind the curtain. I guess you could say, or they get overconfident. That they they feel that you know they've they've had so much success in what they do. They're you know they have a lie for all seasons. I mean they they create you know just. Any, anything and everything that would possibly further their agenda um, doesn't have to make sense. It'll make sense to somebody. Right. It'll make sense to whoever can take it and 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 run with it. And run with it. Well, it does make me wonder with you know these types of things happening. If you know many of uh, our pathological leaders are feeling more pressure um, from you know Putin coming on the world scene and, and doing what he's doing in a very human way and that that presents, you know, this challenge to them uh, that, you know, just kind of drives them towards desperation, like, you're, like you said, Meg. And um, on that note, uh, you know, you kind of hope that his actions might inspire, you know, some, some genuine leadership from people who might have a conscience. Now, I don't know that there's many that exist in the United States uh, political system, uh, but there have been a few uh, in these past few weeks who have said some incredibly rational things. And uh, Dana uh, Rockebacker, he's uh, Robacker. Uh, he's he's recently uh, he had a uh, he was in a hearing in, with uh, the assistant secretary. Uh, and um, Press uh, uh, Patterson, and so. So he's basically a congressman mm-hmm. uh, holding one of these congressional hearings. Is it like the Armed Services Committee or the? He, yeah, he's, uh, so he's a Republican congressman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been serving since 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is actually involved uh, with the Reagan administration, and you know he has an interesting uh, history. You know, it's not like he's been uh, a sole voice of, you know, reason throughout. Uh, you know, he voted for the Iraq war, although he has, you know, um, he later said that that was, you know, he regretted that. Um, and, you know, he does have some illusions about Iraq, uh, but he does have some sense when it comes to, uh, when it comes to Russia, Russia's involvement in Syria. And so he is, he chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Subcommittee um, on Europe, Eurasia, and Emerging Threats. 
So this committee had a hearing. Um, Newland was there, and like I said, Patterson. Uh, and we have a clip here that we want to play where, you know, he, he's talking about, you know, what are we doing with Russia? Like, uh, well, let me, let me just play that, and then uh, afterwards we'll we'll discuss and then hear from from Patterson after. We we sit here and say, oh, well, Russia wants to keep Assad in power. How horrible that is, because Assad is a dictatorship. As if Saudi Arabia isn't a dictatorship and wouldn't murder millions of people or thousands of people to stay in power? What about other Gulf states run by kingdoms who would murder their people in great number? They're no different than Assad. In fact, they might be better than Assad because some of them are religiously motivated to the point that the uh, that sort of like a uh, like communism was a was a religious conviction. Well, they, their their form of Islam sometimes puts them at odds with Sunnis or Shiites killing each other. Uh, the double standard that we have been judging Russia with and basing our policy on that double standard has caused us great harm. Great harm. The the, the Putin. Five years ago, tried to work out an, a compromise with us, and we turned him down that would have created uh, at least some sort of semblance of stability in Syria. And now it has totally gone to hell, and we still can't our, get ourselves to try to look at Putin as a possible partner in cooperation to make things better. I believe it is our hostility towards Russia that has prevented us from creating a policy that will create a, a more stable Middle East. And uh, uh, Gaddafi, look, we made an agreement with him that we were going to, uh, about Gaddafi. And what did we do? We broke that agreement, and has that resulted in order to have the alternative, the non-Qaddafi, uh, non-Islamic uh, alternative into power? Did that make it any better there? No. Libya today, half of Libya is controlled by people who want to murder us because they're radical Muslims. Uh, had we been working with the Russians all along in good faith, I believe this, uh, this situation in the Middle East would have been totally different and, uh, and better. Is it possible that some of these reports that we're getting, yeah, Assad is a murderous dictator, but some of the, the magnitude of his oppression and his murder of his own people might be exaggerated to achieve certain political ends? I would think so. Well, um, pretty rare to hear from, especially somebody from that's heading a committee uh, in the U.S. Congress. Um, now, you know, he, he does say some things like, you know, yeah, Assad is a murderous dictator, um, but perhaps these reports are, you know, some of these reports are exaggerated. Well, yes, they are completely exaggerated. Mm -hmm. They're completely made up out of thin air. Mm -hmm. There's no reports that have been, you know, uh, that there's evidence for that says that Assad is killing his people. None. I mean, the, 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 these numbers that these neocons and uh, Democrats are coming out with saying, you know, Assad's killed 250,000 people. You know, he's he's killing people every day. You know, these numbers, it's so distorted. Well, here's the thing. The lie is so monstrous. It's so huge that I think even he's yeah. embarrassed to to go, you know, barrel bombings, bullshit. 
250,000 civilians uh, killed uh, by by Assad. Total bullshit. Uh, you know, 80 or 90 percent of, of that number uh, is has been the soldiers and and ISIL in mm, conflict. Exactly. They're saying. Um, so you know, it, he has to kind of temper it. Mm-hmm. I think in the way that Tulsi Gabbard did right. um, when, when she made the appearance on CNN recently, and uh, and had to kind of go along with the 9/11 narrative as, as being, you know, it's Al Qaeda, so why are we with Al Qaeda now? Just to kind of uh, just to kind of make it as palatable, uh, his point as palatable as possible for as many as possible. Um, but uh, anyway, kudos to him. Well, that's that's the underlying theme that the United States has has tried to prop up that we're we're against terrorists. We're 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 going to fight terror. We're a bunch of terror fighters, and you know it's it's complete bullshit. Excuse my language. Uh, and you know these these um, I think uh, Gabbard and um, Rohrabacher, he they're they're coming from a place that does think this is true that you know yes we should be fighting terrorism and they can see that russia is fighting terrorism mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be any more convoluted than that mm-hmm. that's basic that's what you know they understand that's what many of the american people can understand mm-hmm. and that's what russia understands and is using to bring expose this lie that the u.s is actually against terrorism when clearly we're not um now <coughs> excuse me um now he brings up a, a point about you know, where he's talking about this double standard uh, that that we have in our relationship that the United States has in the relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, these guys are fanatics. Uh, they're absolutely nuts. They're beheading people every other day. I mean, uh, somebody gets behead, beheaded for. Uh, there was one guy um, earlier in the year. He, he no, I'm, I'm sorry. He was, a few years ago, he was arrested for um, his involvement in protests and speaking at, and, and trying to uh, arrange protests with his BlackBerry. That was what he was charged with. And this guy is um, awaiting a beheading, along with a uh, being crucified afterwards. I mean, this is sick, sick stuff. And it's happening all all the time. And this isn't even speaking about Saudi Arabia's involvement in creating terror, in in propping up ISIS, in sending weapons, funds, uh, oil deals. You know, all, all this, all this, all this uh, behind the behind the scenes stuff. Even the most overt stuff. It's obvious, you know, how uh, destructive and pathological uh, the Saudi Arabian. Um, dictatorship is, but let's hear what uh, Patterson has to say. Well, let me give you a question so you can feel, please feel free to disagree with everything that I say. I believe it, and I know you have your beliefs too, and they're honest disagreements. But uh, let me just ask then about if indeed Assad is uh, is removed and we get this third alternative, why won't it be just the same as happened with Gaddafi, where the radical Islamists who hate us now see a weaker adversary, and it will come in and replace whatever that regime is very quickly with a regime that will control all of Syria 
and they will be radicals be, uh, that will be our worst nightmare. Why wouldn't that happen in Syria the way it happened in Libya? Uh, if I, I need to say something, uh, Mr. Rohrbacher. Please feel respect, free to retort. With, what I said. with respect, I, I can't let it go by the comparison of Bashar al-Assad with our, with our Gulf allies. These countries are not in our image, but there is no way that they, have, they oppress their citizens or kill their citizens to the extent that Bashar al-Assad is. But let me... Uh, you're saying they wouldn't do that? They would not engage in, in, in military use of the military to suppress their people if their guest workers decided to rise up? And yes, I'm saying that, Mr. They, they wouldn't? I know it's a Saudi Arabia country. Naive. I know well, and they would not do that. Oh, that's not how, how it works there. But let me try and answer your question about Syria. And, and the, I, there's broad consensus in the international community that, that the uh, institutions in Syria would remain intact the intelligence, the military, the police, the civil service, the, the ministerial structures like health structures, and that the goal is to remove Bashar al-Assad and his closest advisors uh, and, and have this political process that would lead to a new government. So it is not to destroy the institutional structure. In Libya, I would argue there weren't any institutions. Okay. It's a you, very you've outlined situation. it well. You've outlined it well. Why is it in our – why do we have to go in and make that decision – in Syria. Why is it for the United States to step in to this far off land rather than going to perfect? There's lots of places we could go and perfect. Why is it for us to have to go in and do that when we know that you've got these radical Islamicists who are just waiting on the sideline for some type of instability that they could take advantage of? Because our national security is at stake in the region and the security of our allies like Israel and, and the GCC countries and Lebanon and Jordan is on Turkey is ultimately affected by what happens in Syria. The our, that's right. And our policies are making the instability worse. And in fact, we could, we're dealing with Putin instead of trying to, to uh, demonize him. Perhaps we could have had more stability there and our friends would be actually better off. Bravo. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And how many lies uh, did you guys count? She opened count? her mouth and it just started, and it never ended until she closed it. Everything. Yes. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest? Well, the the one of the main points that uh, that she was asked about was, why is Syria going to be different from Libya? And her, her answer was, well... Uh, Syria, you know, we're not going to destroy their uh, their institution, their institutions, and and their infrastructure. But Libya didn't have any of that, so it's a completely different situation. Well, That's two, a blatant lie. Two lies right there. One, of course, Syria has and had infrastructure. Uh, the U.S. military. Libya. Um, well, no, I'm, I'm talking about oh. Syria too, okay. but but like Libya as well. Um, the U.S. has been targeting Syrian infrastructure uh, just to just to exacerbate the situation. But getting to Libya, um, I mean, basically, uh, of course, it, it had a ton of infrastructure. Uh, you can see the pictures. There's a lot of documentation about it. Uh, Libya provided social services to its people. That is all destroyed now, basically, uh, or the majority of it is. Um, so 
few other civilizations in modern times reached the the pinnacle of awesomeness that Libya was able to. Yeah. Like they like there there's no comparison to other countries when it comes to what Libya did for their people. You know, they didn't just take in the their oil funds and use it for, you know, their own pocket to line their own pockets. It was used for the people. People had their own homes when they got married. Uh, education, education was free. Uh, you know, there weren't, there was no debt they didn't to pay off. They had healthcare. And free healthcare. Like, the list goes on and on and on. And this didn't happen without with no institutions. That's ridiculous. What a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, the the tribal structure in Libya was so amazing and worked for the people, and that was an institution mm-hmm. that was destroyed. Or, and, and instead, they put these rebel, uh, crazed terrorists in charge. Like, give me a break. Yeah. And, and, then, and then her point about that's not the way things work in Saudi Arabia. Well, look at what's happening in Yemen. It's a perfect example yes. of, of, of the type of aggression that, that Saudi Arabia is capable of. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is a country that... that you know, chops people's heads off with the drop of a hat. And their hands. And their hands, and and uh, I mean, it's 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 not it's not merely backward. Uh, it's what's the word? Delusional. It's delusional. It's uh, barbaric. It's barbaric. That's what I wanted to. Yeah. It's a barbaric place. Um, but so there are friends. But they're our friends, so they're not barbaric. Right. Because they're because, our friends. Because we say so. Because we say so, and they have a lot of oil, and and uh, and they help prop up the the petrodollar, and so how could they be that evil if they're making so many of our you know companies so rich? That, why why how, how do you how do you call a friend who makes us so rich evil? I mean, what's wrong with you? you yeah, know? They supply arms to the people we want arms supplied to. Yeah, right. They do that too. Yeah. Well. If you weren't sickened enough by Patterson, just hold on to your horses, because Victoria Newland was also uh, part of that hearing, and uh, just prepare yourselves because she's Get a, the barf bag. Yeah. All right, Russia's new direct Newland. combat role in Syria has exacerbated an already dangerous refugee outflow, straining even the most generous Europeans' ability to cope. Turkey currently hosts 2.2 million refugees and by its account has invested over $8 billion towards their care and well-being. This year, the Turkish Coast Guard rescued an estimated 68,000 individuals attempting a dangerous sea voyage. Just since Russian combat operations began in Syria, Greece has recorded its highest level of migration flows per week with an estimated 48,000 refugees and migrants crossing into the country in one week. The Western Balkans is also stretched thin from increased migration primarily through Macedonia, Serbia, and Croatia. These countries report an average of five to 8,000 migrants passing through their borders daily. Germany's under strain. It's recorded over 577,000 arrivals just in the last nine months. Inside Syria, just over the last month, while the Russians have been active, the United Nations reports at least 120,000 Syrians have been internally displaced as a result of the regime's attacks 
aided by Russian airstrikes. 52,800 people were displaced from northern Hama and southern Idlib alone. These numbers validate what we already know and what you yourself, Chairman, pointed out. While Moscow asserts that its military actions are directed at ISIL, the vast majority of Russian airstrikes are targeted in areas where the Assad regime has lost territory to forces led by the moderate opposition. In pure economic terms, the price of its air campaign is estimated at two to four million dollars per day. This at a time when average Russians are feeling the pinch of recession brought on by economic mismanagement, low oil prices, and sanctions applied for the Kremlin's last military adventure in Ukraine. Russian casualties are also reportedly on the rise, although the Kremlin is again working overtime to mask them and silence the loved ones of the lost. And as the dumb bombs that Russia is dropping inevitably hit the wrong targets, a market in Damascus, the Aleppo provincial headquarters, an ammunition dump of the Free Syrian Army, Russia is paying a very steep price to its reputation in the fight against terror. That's why, for now, we have limited our own military cooperation with Russia to the most basic of aviation deconfliction procedures to protect our own air crews. What would positive cooperation by Russia look like? First, Russia would turn its guns on ISIL and stop the carnage in and around Syria's western cities. As the price of its support, Moscow would insist that Assad ground the helicopters and planes that he's using to barrel bomb innocents on a daily basis. And it would urgently work with us, our allies, and UN Envoy Stefan de Mistura to turn the statement of principles that Secretary Kerry, Foreign Minister Lavrov, and 17 other ministers and institutions released in Vienna last Friday into a true ceasefire a, power, a parallel political transition process, and hasten the day that Assad's bloody tenure comes to an end. Oh, was that sickening or what? Very sickening. I mean, you, know, you asked how many lives Patterson could pack in there, and I mean, Newland. She, she, she just, trumped it. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is that the, the narrative was okay. She just had the wrong culprit and slotted in all those places. It wasn't. It's not Russia. It's a, it's a NATO U.S. You know. Exactly, and yeah. and that's one of her powers of deception, right? Yeah. She rattles off all of these facts and statistics, and 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 uses all of this inflection. You know, uh, if if Russia's hurting itself by doing this, and uh, you know, it, it's it's this crafted. Uh, um, at least among some, I mean, it's it's just such masterful bullshit. Uh, you know, you listen to all these facts, and if you didn't if you didn't actually know what was going on there, you'd say, "Oh, but it's so fact based." Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, there's this whole understory uh, that's missing. Well, Russia has been involved in Syria for roughly a month. Mm -hmm. This, like, to her opening there talking about all these the refugee crisis mm -hmm. happening during Russia's time in uh, Syria it's completely absurd it it's it, like hello they, they they this this crisis didn't just start happening but right. you nutter i mean it's just it's just insane yeah. to mm -hmm. to to put these numbers out there uh, and and to depend it on Russia like it it 
I'd say it's baffling, but you know, it's it's not it's not surprising that that they that they would do this. It's similar to uh, Netanyahu's delusional declaration. So, I mean, she, maybe she really believed that. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't wonder. I wonder the same thing too. Like, uh, you know, do these people believe you know their own lies? Yeah. I mean, when uh, a psychopath tells a lie, you know, you can't. You can't put them under a, a polygraph test because you know they they do believe their own lies. Yeah. But you know, I I, I don't think that you know I I think uh, Newland does know that she's lying. Yeah. Just that this is what everybody should believe. Well, if if you think about um, let's just call it just for so it makes sense. It makes sense in my head. Israeli imperialism or Israel's imperialism, the same mental gymnastics that Netanyahu and his staff are going through is the same mental gymnastics that our government's going through. It's like, you know, America, uh, American imperialism is not going to be questioned and will demonize anybody who questions it, you know? And when people do, like Putin, makes them crazy. They start acting crazy. Their mask starts to fall. How ridiculous. I don't think through Newland's talk. How ridiculous it is. Just like, it's really obvious with Netanyahu. He's gone off the deep end. But how close are we? Does that make sense? Can we learn from the master? You know, I, I think it. I think it does make sense in a way. I mean, so when I think of Newland, the first thing I think about is uh, the fact that she's a neocon. Um, how she helped implement the uh, the coup in Ukraine. Uh, how instrumental she is. How she, you know how connected she is to all of these plan for a new American century policy wonks and then helps usher it through. I mean, she is, you know, basically, uh, she is a political uh, force for chaos in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's, she's pretty successful at it. Uh, she'll do and say anything that uh, will help forward this agenda. Just like Netanyahu. Just like Netanyahu. Yeah. Um, she's totally committed to it. Um, you know, when you when you look at her arrogant, you know, statements regarding you know, fuck the EU, uh, when when they weren't kind of getting on board with with some of the policies that they were in Ukraine that they were trying to implement in, in the IMF. I mean, she is she's a force of nature. But she's concerned about the EU now, Elon. All the refugees that are going there, she's talk, she's saying that because she she cares about the EU, right? No, no, that's a hypocritical thing. To say. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. She go, she says, you know, fuck the EU, and then you know now makes these statements, right? About like, yeah, how could you? Greece and, and Well, uh, like, what were what were some of the other things? Oh, the, the Russian dumb bombs and, and Assad was barrel bombing his people, right. uh, and you know that that the United or that Russia needs to stop his daily murdering of people. Like, give me a break. Like, there's there's zero. There, I haven't seen a single story, even in the mainstream news, about Assad killing his own people in the past month. None. I, I like I, I you know I, I hear commentators talk about it, mm-hmm. but actual stories. There's no proof of that. There's no yeah, proof of it. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. All they have to do is repeat ad nauseum: yeah. Assad's brutal dictator, Assad's barrel bombing his people, over and over and over and over again, 
And uh, and then when folks hear something that contradicts it or questions it, it's like, well, well what are you talking about? Assad's a brutal dictator. Assad's barrel bombing his own people. Everybody knows that. You know? <laughs> well, that's the sad truth of the matter. Yeah. And And, you know, how do you... You know, how do you reach people who've been so programmed uh, to believe in these things? Because they've heard it so many effing times. I don't know. I don't know either. You have to teach people to think. I mean, it's 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 that simple. Well, yeah, there needs to be some voice in the media, which there isn't. Like, well, at some point in my life, I believe those things. You know, and I think there's some, maybe it's natural, maybe it's curiosity, maybe it's getting, you have a some sort of moral bankruptcy or emotional bankruptcy where you start to question Mm -hmm. maybe the, you know, coming collapse or maybe that will generate that desire. I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a possibility and probably the only possibility that, which, you know, is unfortunate, but only when people really feel the effects firsthand, will some of them wake up to the reality. I'm sure, you know, like many, many people will still go along with, uh, oh, our economy collapsed because Russia and China, or whatever. It's you know, Russia's excuse. Fault. Yeah. Blame the Mufti. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow they're connected to the Mufti. <laughs> well, so there, there is Victoria Newland, um, who we've just heard. Uh, she, you know, next to a lot of these people, should be tried for war crimes. Uh, and lying and perjury. Um, of course, you know, they have such legalistic minds and, and the backings of so many others who believe in their vision that uh, that'll probably never happen. Um, but we can we can hope. Did we have a uh, another uh, press conference piece, Jane? Or? Well, yeah, we have, I mean, we do have um, another clip, I believe, from the State Department. Um, now, there is, um, there's, and, and it does like talk about these hearings, um, specifically the one uh, that we just heard. Uh, one of the things that Patterson had said was that there was, um, uh, we didn't hear, yeah, we didn't hear the, um, this on audio, but one of our other claims was that Russia was bombing um, mainly 90% of the time uh, Syrian uh, opposition forces, legitimate forces. So it, it goes into that. Um, the, with the State Department representative um, John Kirby mm-hmm. and the reporter questioning is from uh, RT Gagne Chikagan. Um, so, here's the clip. Ann Patterson said at a hearing in the House on Wednesday, up to 90% of Russian strikes in Syria have hit the moderate Syrian opposition. During the same hearing, she said, quote, the Nusra Front, which is an al-Qaeda affiliate, has absorbed the various moderate groups, have absorbed a number of what we would previously call the moderate opposition, end of quote. How certain are you of this definition of moderate Syrian opposition when uh, when you have such migration from moderates to terrorists? Um, I, well, we certainly uh, uh, agree completely with what Assistant Secretary Patterson said, and we've uh, we've talked about this before. Um, 
the opposition groups, as you know, are not all united. They don't all share the same goals. Um, membership is a fluid thing. It's not like they all carry identification cards and uh, have matching ties and that kind of thing. Um, and and people do kind of come and go. Um, and we have seen that um, over the course of the last year, some moderates become extreme. We don't believe, and I think her comment bears this out, that it's happening to the great majority uh, of moderate opposition fighters. Uh, it happens to some. You use the word fluid, and yet the U.S. assigns a certain percentage to Russian strikes, which, which indicates that the U.S. knows for certain who is who on the ground. Is that the case? We have a, a very good idea. I mean, if your question is that certain individuals uh, from an opposition group find themselves attracted to ISIL or al-Nusra and become extreme and and go f fight with them, um, that there's a, there's a pretty long uh, leap you're making there if you're saying that you're seeing some individual fighters become extreme to it's so fluid and, and so mixed that we have no idea who's I where would, and who's I doing what. I explain what's, uh, what's confusing about on the other On the one hand, U.S. officials sound very definitive and certain when they talk about who Russia is targeting. On the other hand, we hear U.S. officials say, oh, it's so difficult to identify who modern Syrian rebels are. We've heard Ash Carter testify to that effect. Joseph Biden spoke about that. And Patterson is talking about uh, moderates migrating, you know, to, to terrorists. U.S. officials have actually been critical of this definition of modern, uh, moderate Syrian um, opposition, but the label suddenly becomes solid when the conversation is about Russia. How can U.S. officials... Okay, I'd pause it a little short. Uh, the remaining discussion is, is basically uh, the two going back and forth and uh, how you know, Kirby is basically saying that uh, well, you know, yeah, they, they, these politicians may have said this, but it was about something totally different. It was about a training arms program, and, you know, this is regarding groups, and you're talking about individuals, and blah, 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 blah. Um, now, one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to share this clip was just because of uh, Kirby's uh, amazing um, use of propaganda, and, you know, he, he sounds like... He's a rational individual uh, to, you know, probably the, the average person. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the way he communicates, you know, he, he himself is, you could say, is kind of fluid. Um, and so it, it's just, I think, instructive to see or to hear, you know, how, how that, how, how this uh, propaganda is put forth. And, you know, it makes it sound like, yeah, well, we know we know this. We know that there's some that you know go from group to group. Well, you know, on the in the reality, uh, the reality on the ground is that there are whole groups who have turned over and you know joined with ISIS and you know these guys. It, to say you know there's just a few individuals, it, it's like the same thing with uh, you know there's just a few bad apples in the bunch. And with uh, Abu Ghraib, you know that whole uh, BS line, mm -hmm. and you know it's, it's like it's such an understatement uh, for him to say this, and you know it, it's just kind of it's the latest 
um, talking point for them to say, you know, Russia is is bombing Syrian territory, and that that is has been taken over by these moderates. This is very recent, and and you you see this piece popping up all over the place that uh, suddenly these moderates have captured these massive land grabs all of a sudden. It's come out of nowhere. And, I mean, give me a break. This is ISIS-controlled territory. Right. The moderates, you know, the six guys, right? Yeah. yeah. The there, there, was, guys? there was five. Okay, it's a train and equip program that, that Kirby uh, had talked about. Uh, so McCain, there was a, uh, maybe uh, six weeks ago, uh, McCain, there was a, uh, another hearing where McCain was uh, grilling. Uh, it might have been General Dunford or Carter or somebody else. And you say, this is outrageous. How is it that we've spent yeah, $500 million? And how many how many people do we have? And <laughs> I think it's Carter. He says, like, well, you know, there's not, not too many. And uh, five or six that we have that are currently operational or six. Well, look, let's take a step back for a second here because uh, – you know, a couple of things occur to me. One, and this is where you want to kind of knock everybody over the head, you know, Saddam Hussein, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, killing his own people. Assad, brutal dictator. I mean, it's the same narrative over and over and over again uh, as justification for you know, destroying countries. That's what they're doing. They're destroying populations. Uh, they're destroying infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you get these hired guns because that's what they are. You know, Kirby's a hired gun. Uh, and without really knowing what's going on and listening to him and acknowledging that he is, you, you didn't hear it quite in that clip because uh, he was, he was a little bit, um, I don't know, there was some trepidation there about saying some things. Uh, she had some good questions. But later on, he really kind of gains a stride. And the, the, the obfuscations and, and rationalizations and the, the BS that comes out of his mouth to uh, justify everything is really, you know, worthy of a salary. Uh I mean, he's a he's doing, uh, and you know we've we've had him before. We've had clips of him before and saw it where he hasn't done quite as well. Um, but uh, but these people are paid professional liars, uh, and and they've they've somehow learned how to how to do it really really well. Um, I guess because they're so used to doing it. Uh, you know, they were captain on their debate team, whatever in whatever university they they went to, or. Uh, whatever, but in any case, um, that may be. Did we want to say anything else about that? Yeah. So moving right along, um, in addition to all of this, uh, you know, political science theater. That's a takeoff from uh, Mystery Science Five Thousand or Three Thousand. That that TV show. Yeah. I mean, you know, because it is it is a kind of theater of the absurd that we're looking at today, and. Um, but also, if it weren't so messed up, really entertaining. 
uh, to observe. But uh, there are some other things going on, very big things, um, very big shakeups on the planet in the form of uh, volcanoes, earthquakes. Yeah. Well, we had our uh, Happy Halloween asteroid pass by the night of Halloween. Um, two days prior to that, there was a apparently a, a huge meteor that could be seen from Belgium to the Netherlands. Huge. Uh, we had one in Poland on Halloween night. We had one in New Hampshire the next day, and there's huge ones in Bangkok, and there's also one in New Jersey and Hong Kong. Um, we have also had, um, just this past week, um, talking about volcanoes, um, At just this last week, uh, there were five new volcanoes that became active um, on the planet, we have one, um, Rinjani, Lambuk Island in Indonesia, Turalabia, uh, Costa Rica, uh, Chile, um, the Heard Islands on the Oceanic Plateau, and Fuego, Guatemala. Those are all volcanoes recording a new activity or unrest. Um, as far as active volcanoes, there's 18, and it's a long list. I don't, I don't think I need to go into them. Um, the last one to erupt would be, be Mount Rinjani. And that canceled flights, so it was such a huge explosion. Um, we've also had uh, several earthquakes. Um, we've had them in Chile, uh, New Zealand, Albania, Slovenia, Alaska, Taiwan. There were three earthquakes north of Phoenix, which were considered rare. Apparently, they don't happen very often. We've had them in Pakistan, um, East Timor, another one in Indonesia, southeast France got an earthquake um, on the 6th. And we had a, another earthquake in Chile today and in Lebanon today and as well in the Philippines today. Um, I wanted to talk, we also had a quake in a place called the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is in east, it's the far east of Russia. And it's a peninsula there and it has got the highest amount of volcanoes in the world. It's got 160 volcanoes and 29 of them are active at any time. And this particular volcanic chain has been fairly active recently. There's a bunch of different volcanoes in there, all 29 of them, that are active on and off. Um, and it's supposed to be one of the most powerful existing volcano chains in the world. So, And it's rumbling over there. So basically, all over the planet, we're getting very high incidence of volcanic activity um, that that you can point to statistically. Like, it's it's not even, you know, you can look at data and, and see that there's just a higher incidence across the board. Absolutely. And and earthquakes. And earthquakes. Um, and this is just just for an interesting note. The, the day the Russian plane crashed, there were five different earthquakes that day. And um, the uh, I think it was Trialba had had five eruptions in the morning in like a four-hour period with the volcano. So it's just interesting. I mean, this, it all happened in one day, but it seems that there's a lot of activity recently. We're going to talk a little bit in depth of about uh, one particular uh, fault in a moment. Um, Meg, you were also observing fireball activity. Yeah, I went over the Earth yeah at the beginning. Um, Netherlands, Belgium, Poland, New Hampshire, um, Bangkok, New Jersey. Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like there was a, you know, maybe a last year or more this year actually, that there was not as many fireballs. 
And uh, just with uh, this fall uh, season, that we're starting to see a pretty dramatic increase. Yeah, um, just reporting this week, we reported on seven different fireballs, and the week before had been three, and the, the week before two or three. So, I, I I saw one one evening. Yeah, I, I, I think I you saw, saw one as well. I saw one uh, last week. A little fireball going across the sky. So one of the questions I think for many of us is: um, Does violent human behavior attract cosmic disorder and planetary response? Is the rise of pathology and power the key elements? Uh, this is proposed by uh, Lauren Knight Datsik, and her answers were: Psychopaths rise to power and inflict misery and suffering. The masses of humanity become unhappy and miserable but are forced to suppress this out of fear. The planet expresses the unhappiness of the masses in climate disorder, which may be related to other cosmic processes. The climate issues exacerbate the fear and unhappiness of the masses. The psychopaths then clamp down even harder uh, a breaking point is reached when humanity and the planet react to pathology and death and destruction on a massive scale, and the result is the leveling of the playing field. And then human beings learn to help each other to survive until psychopathic psychopaths come along and subvert them, and the process begins again. So it, it sounds like th there is a double, triple cycle going on that is, is far beyond just the planet reacting. Just It's beyond the, the um, scope of just human behavior to human behavior. There's um, cosmic things, and they are all connected. Yeah, it's a very different perspective from you know, what we're taught, just in general uh, thinking terms, uh, that you know, we typically think of things in isolation. I mean, the United States itself is a very isolated um, country and with isolated ideologies. And, you know, we don't think in terms of how the masses of people can interact with more cosmic phenomenon and vice versa. Like, it's, it's a very different paradigm uh, to, to think about. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's very few, I think, who are... You know, even looking at these things in this way and, you know, exploring these ideas and these concepts when, you know, these may be extremely important things uh, to, that can speak to, uh, you know, what's happening on the planet. Um, you know, I, I, I doubt that it is just, you know, coincidental that all this stuff is, is going on at the same time. These things are connected, uh, and and we as human beings are connected with that too. Um, yeah, it's a pretty wild, pretty wild times. You know, in, in legal language um, and in insurance language, you know, they they call certain um, kind of environmental uh, disasters acts of God. And um, you know, I think in modern day parlance, it's it's kind of understood as you know this arbitrary kind of uh, a causal uh, thing that just happens. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, if you think about it, really uh, an act of God 
uh, in terms of or in the context of environmental disasters suggests that there is this kind of higher intelligence uh, or higher um, uh, uh, universal law that things are um, kind of moving with or uh, or adhering to. Um, and of course, I, I don't think it would be wise to ascribe everything. Uh, there is bad luck. There is uh, there are accidents. Um, but I, I do think that we can afford to give you know these ideas some credence and and look at our environment and, and the things that happen in it as symbolic for uh, larger cosmic laws, for lack of a better description. Oh, the idea that things just happen. You know, we we kind of take that approach too with uh with sickness and illness. You know, oh, I I, I just got sick. I just got yeah, diabetes. I I just got cancer. I just got you know whatever fill in the blank. And you know, uh, and that happens with with so many things, uh, so many areas. And it really takes the the process of discovery and learning uh, out of the picture. Uh, there's no curiosity, you know, because things just happen. Mm-hmm. It just happens that way, and it's it's pretty ridiculous. But it, it's also a very shallow uh, way to live. And um, you know, it, when when you start to look into the reasons why, and, you know, you have that that burning desire to know, like it it, it awakens something in in you where you know it's that it's that process of discovery and, and knowledge and truth, and you know it, those are extremely powerful forces that have been put to sleep uh, by these pathologicals and uh, this environment in which we live. And, you know, and that just seems that that adds to uh, the chaos. Well, the, this author, authoritarian mindset that we're under the sway of um, really kind of asks people to relinquish their own personal responsibility in gaining knowledge and putting their trust in the authorities, in the government, in the uh, medical establishment, uh, in all sorts of uh, established um, groups and, and organizations that uh, that are informed by "leave it to us." And uh, you know, the most empowering uh, kind of influences in this world say no. Uh, you have to think about it. You have to do your homework if you're going to take some responsibility for those things that affect you directly. Um, and anyway, not to digress too much, uh, but those are those are kind of key issues that we like to discuss here. Um, and on the subject of earthquakes, I, I know, Karen, that you were examining a couple of uh, serious dynamics that are happening or, occurring in the Pacific Northwest. Well, uh, the Pacific Northwest is part of the the Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, very much in play, um, the subduction zones and the, the different plate tectonics that are being influenced by, um, you know, just global, global dynamics, um, uh, cosmic dynamics. Um, you know, we're, we're not sure. Uh, all of the, the aspects of that, but um, there's there's one fault uh, that is a, a really big one that could have just 
massive implications for the United States. And most people think about, uh, if they think about an earthquake fault, they think about the San Andreas, mm-hmm. which is uh, California. It runs pretty much the length of California and um, in, on the verge of, of releasing the big one. But the San Andreas has, you know, uh, it, it it has little tremors here and there, and it releases uh, a certain amount of its its friction. Um, and the upper limit on that would be like an 8.2. But just north of the San Andreas lies another fault, which is known as the Cascadia Subduction Zone, and it runs for 700 miles off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, beginning at Cape Mendocino, California, going all the way up through past Oregon through Washington and terminating around Grant, uh, Vancouver Island in Canada. Um, the, subduct, the subduction zone is uh, part of where one plate, tectonic plate, slides underneath another. And if you put your hands together, you put your palms down, and you put your middle fingers together touching, um, your right hand would represent the North American plate, and the left hand would be the Juan de Fuca plate. And um, your your North American plate would basically represent from New York all the way to Seattle. That's that's the whole North American plate. Mm-hmm. Um, so your Juan de Fuca has ninety thousand square miles in size. It's huge, and it is subducting underneath the, the North American plate. So if you slid your left hand underneath your right one. Your right one over your left one, that's what the subduction would do. Um, and what, what happens is that your right hand, if, it's, if it kept sliding, would be okay. That would, that would be fine. You would not have you know, something that's, that's stuck. But even though the North American plate is stuck, um, and so it's building up pressure, that's why you have the mountain ranges in, along the West Coast. Um, if, you, if you pull your knuckles up, um, that represents a, a mountain range. If you suddenly let that um, pressed up knuckles go sliding, then that's, that's the effort of releasing um, the plate. But that's, that's not going to happen because the North American plate is essentially stuck. It's going to back up into um, the craton that's in the middle of our country. And so, and so when that happens, we have um, a bigger and, and higher magnitude earthquake possible. And again, this is from, this is from mid, mid-upper California all the way up to Vancouver. Uh, we could have an earthquake from 8.7 to 9.2 off of, off of this. Um, yeah, just a question, Karen. So I got... I'm I'm used to as most people are thinking uh, of earthquakes in terms of fault lines, yeah. and and the idea of uh, these plates abutting each other and and creating all of this pressure suggests so much more uh, um, energy yeah. being released and yeah. and geological uh, disturbance uh, that it, it's on a, it, it seems to be on this whole other scale. That we're not used to thinking about. So that, that's kind of what you're so saying, the North right? North American plate is stuck, and then the mm-hmm. other plate you're talking about is sliding, sliding, is sliding underneath it. It's okay. sliding under, underneath it. And so, what will happen when this 
springs, as we know it will, um, the North American plate will drop at least six feet and rebound to 100 feet to the west. Um, this is a huge, this would be a huge land movement all at the same time. Um, and so the, the shift will take place beneath the ocean and displace a colossal amount of water. You know, you have, you have, you have the land dropping, you have the land shifting, you have this huge displacement of water. Um, the water will surge upward like a huge hill. Uh, and then it promptly collapses. On one side, one side of the, the water will go west to Japan, and, and the other wave of, of water will come um, in a 700-mile liquid wall that will reach the northwest coast um, within 15 minutes of the earthquake. 700-mile wall of water. Um, area of impact will cover some... 140,000 square miles. This includes Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, Eugene, Salem, um, Olympia. It will affect some 7 million people so, at um, least. Let me interrupt because when you say 700 uh, miles, you mean going in. Um, so, it ha like, do we do we have an understanding of how high a tsunami that would form, or? This, um, not really. Yeah. The, uh, this this is going to be. I mean, it'll it'll just be like almost. I don't know. Pretty, pretty tall. This is this is this is huge. Yeah. So, like, comparing it to what we saw in the pictures and film from Fukushima, Japan. It, it'll it'll be it'll be about ten times worse than Fukushima. Okay. So, um, theme is projecting that. 13,000 people will die in the earthquake and tsunami. Another 27,000 will be injured. Um, they expect that a million people will be displaced, that food and water uh, will, will be needed for another 2.5 million people. This is, I mean, this is just going to be huge. Um, the chances of this earthquake happening within the next 50 years are roughly th 1 in 3. And the Pacific Northwest is basically unprepared to face it. Um, Thirty years ago, they didn't know that the Cascade subduction zone had ever produced a major earthquake. Um, Forty-five years ago, no one even knew it existed. So that it's it's a relatively new um, discovery. Um, we now know that it has this Northwest Cascade. Subduction zone has had 41 sub subduction earthquakes in the past 10,000 years, so that averages out to 243 years uh, per event. Mm. Um, we are now in the 315th year, mm. so if, you know just on average, but things you know things don't go that linearly. Mm -hmm. But but you know we are certainly in the zone. Um, so what would happen is at first there would be a compressional wave that radiates from the radiates out from the fault line. Uh, this is a fast-moving, high-frequency wave. Uh, it's audible to dogs. People people won't hear it, but um, it, it'll be it'll be just felt like a, a jolt. Um, 
it travels fast enough that sensors would be able to pick it up, but the Pacific Northwest does not have these kinds of sensors. So there, there will be essentially no warning when, this, when the fault goes off. Um, the surface waves are slower, uh, and they, these are the ones that move the ground up and down and, and sideways. Mm -hmm. um, the electrical grid will fall, obviously. Um, uh, homes will be, begin to collapse. They are expecting a million buildings to collapse, uh, a lot of schools and, and you know highway bridges and rails and airports and all kinds of things will go by the wayside. Uh, it will set off landslides throughout the region, and they, they figure up to 30,000 of them will be in Seattle uh, just because of the amount of liquefaction that goes on there. There's a, a, a huge part of Seattle that is built on liquefiable land. Um, the sloshing and sliding and shaking will trigger fires and floods and pipe, you know, all the things you would imagine, dam breakages, um, hazardous, hazardous spills. These will all add to the, the problem. Um, four to six minutes after the dogs bark, um, the shaking will subside. Uh, the region will be upended and continue to fall apart on its own, and then the wave will, re wave will arrive, and this is the real destruction. This is where the real destruction comes in. Um, the tsunamis, they say, are closest to being the most uh, completely unsurvivable of all of the different kinds of, of uh, natural disasters. Um, 71,000 people who live in Cascadia's inundation zone uh, will mean that they, their evacu evacuation will be a really narrow window, window after the earthquake and the, the tsunami begins. It's, it's, a very, it's a very short window. You know, the, you don't have time to get a flashlight. You need to just run. This is, you know, they're not going to be looking for elderly people. They aren't going to be helping tourists. It's, you know, it's everybody needs just to run. Um, 29, they figure that 2% um, of Oregon's coastal population is 65 or older. Uh, Disabled people that a lot of, a lot of people retire and live near the the ocean. Um, these these just these people are just not going to be saved. They're not going to save the tourists. Mm -hmm. um, a grown man is knocked over in ankle deep water that's moving 6.7 miles an hour. The tsunami will be moving at least twice that fast. Um, its height. And you were asking about the height. Um, it could be in some places 20 feet or up to 100 feet. Um, and nor will it just be water because you're going to have all kinds of damage. You're going to have, you know, tr trucks and cars and cinder blocks and fishing boats and, and, you know, building pieces and everything is going to be coming in on that tsunami as it passes over the land. Um, the damage, uh, you know, it's this. We're talking coastal here, but the damage they say will go as far as Sacramento, California, and that's like the same diff the same distance that Fort Wayne, Indiana, is from New York City. That's how that's the the amount of of land that will be corrupted by this event. Wow. Um, so uh, this means search and rescue opera operations across a hundred thousand square miles. Um, and the, the waters, 
it will be 453 miles of coastline will be involved in this. Um, and if it strikes in the summer, it's, it's even going to be worse. So um, they're saying that three to six months without electricity, one to three years without drinking water and sewage systems, three or more years without hospitals, and that does not even apply to the tsunami and inundation zone, which will remain in, uninhabitable for years. Well, did, did they mention that the coastline would basically change for California? I mean, that's, oh, it, it'll well, it'll, it'll be, disappear. It'll yeah, be just yeah, mm. devastating. So um, it, it's it's one of those uh, ring of fire. Warnings. Um, I, I, I've been there. I've been to, to Seattle, all through Oregon, all through Northern California. I mean, just just to think of the, the sheer numbers of people, the, the the low warning, the not having any any kind of um, warning system. Um, that there's signs, you know, in case of a tsunami, go here. But that, you know, there's there's nothing that's going to ring a ding in your you know your cell phone that this is happening. Well, you have to wonder if um, <clears throat> kind of nature is giving a, a warning uh, to California right now uh, in terms of just the extreme drought that uh, has been happening uh, all throughout California, and and this adds, from what I understand, this adds and compounds to you know the the wildfires and possibly even to uh, future earthquakes uh, because the ground is so dry basically um, and you know when you're reading the just the possible outcomes uh, of an earthquake like this this is just one example uh, one area uh, you know on the earth when you know and one type of natural disaster and you know you you look at all the other things and man this stuff's just like it's grim but it's it's you know it's really needed uh in a sense that you know to gain some um like we were talking about earlier you know the we're not completely disconnected from uh from our environment and uh to to take this knowledge and use it where we can um you know if that if that means um, you know, finding uh, a better place to live than California. That's, I mean, if I was in California, I would, I would certainly move. Um, but it's not just a, a physical thing either. I think. Um, yeah, I think that's so one important element. But it's not just that's not the sole issue. Like you don't want to get just bogged down in the survivalist. Uh, I need to survive these natural disasters. That's one component. But you know, what are you doing that for? You know, that that's the other question. You know, do you just want to survive, hold up uh in some cabin uh with your guns? And you know, what's what's the what's the point of that? Um and I think uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the drive and information, you know, that we look at is that, you know, during these chaotic periods, uh there can be um you know, people can come together. Um, and you, we can start building those those types of communities, those types of structures, uh, looking uh, towards how basically what it means to be 
and live as a human being. Uh, and I think that that kind of like you know goes to the root of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think when you look at something of the scope, uh, even if you're on the East Coast or in the Midwest, uh, you'll be affected. Um, you know, on a, on a more mundane level, I'm wondering if if a quake and a tsunami of this size wouldn't also trigger, you know, Yosemite, mm-hmm. wouldn't also trigger the New Madrid Fault in the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, and if, and if those things are triggered, and uh, and Kamchatka is right where the plate as well. It's right on the where the plate be the Asia plate, and I forget the other name of the plate, but that's 160 volcanoes there. So, so we're basically looking at um, the possibility, anyway, of a kind of domino effect. Would, would that be accurate? I think that's a real possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, when you look at the plates, um, you can identify when certain earthquakes happen, uh, say in um, like a, a New Zealand. Oftentimes, there's also a corresponding earthquake or shift across the plate uh, into Asia. Uh, like, you know, there's these massive plates that, that are that exist, and it's like kind of like a seesaw effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know the details of uh, the, how, you know, how the plates exist within the United States, but I could imagine that it would be a similar, that there could be a similar thing, and I think that's kind of what uh, Karen was describing as well. Well, there, there's also um, a recorded uh, phenomena that ha- if, it, if something's happening on, on one side of the world that directly opposite on the other side of the world, there, there's a, a reaction a few days later. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there, there seems to be something that, that vibrates through, right through the Earth versus you know, just going around on the, on the surfaces. Well, tectonic movements in politics, uh, in war, um, something we didn't uh, get to kind of discuss today um, was the kind of movement of the U.S. into Syria. Uh, in short, uh, and, and this will be covered next week, uh, and there'll probably be more developments by then as well. Um, in addition to the 50 or so on-the-ground advisors uh, to the moderate uh, rebels of Syria, the U.S. is now bringing uh, planes. Um, well, reportedly. Reportedly. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like there's a, a message being sent in the delivery of, of these fighter planes that are only... Uh, whose only purpose is to do air-to-air fighting. And, you know, what are the only other uh, fighters in the region of Syria but Russia's? So, you know, is this bluster? Is this uh, the U.S. puffing itself up in a kind of lame response um, of intimidation and and trying to create a greater quagmire for, for Russia and Syria? Uh, and there's a lot more about this that, that we'll get into next week, I think. But um, is there anything that anyone else wanted to add? Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, everybody, thank you for listening this week to The Truth Perspective. Um, thank you to Stephen 
for calling in with his real name. Thank you for our chatters for chatting and discussing the show. And thank you, Meg, Karen, Shane, and William, our moral support here in the studio today. And uh, don't forget to listen in tomorrow behind the headlines, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Next Friday, the Health and Wellness Program, 10 a.m. And until we see you again, have a great week, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next week.